Hear now the word of God. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this evening. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh God, would you use your word to make us Christ-like tonight? Christ-like in how we submit to our superiors. Christ-like in how we serve you in our various callings. Christ-like in our love for one another. Would you shape and change us through your word and by your spirit tonight? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, our passage tonight concerns what we call the household codes. I was feeling very insecure. Uh, Two days ago, I decided to be edified, so I listened to the uh, First Presbyterian Church's uh, YouTube channel. They put all David Strain's sermons up on there, and he was preaching on a similar passage from the book of Colossians. And I began to feel very insecure because I had written this sermon, and there was a great deal of overlap in some of the things he said in his sermon. I thought people are going to believe that I copied David Strain's sermon, and uh, I promise that I didn't do that. This was already written beforehand, but he had the references to Aristotle and all sorts of things similar to me. So I think he got his hands on my notes, truth be told. I think that somehow there's some hacking involved and maybe the Russians somehow connected to it as well. Um, But anyway, our, our passage tonight concerns the household codes, and In the Greek culture, the household was understood to be the most important part of society. If you wanted a healthy, well-ordered society, then you needed a healthy household. And I just want to give you a flavor of of how the Greeks thought. One of the ways you, you, you find out what did the culture of their day really think, you look to the philosophers, even the ones that come hundreds of years before. And I want to read you two sentences from Aristotle. I don't usually read Aristotle in the pulpit. This is an unusual move, but uh, I think this is helpful for us. Aristotle says we first need to discuss household management. For every state is composed of households. Household management falls into the parts of which it is composed. And the smallest parts of the household are master and slave, husband and wife, and father and children. And so Aristotle is saying that there are various categories of what it is to be a household, and that's what he sort of breaks things down into. 
And so the Greeks had this one dominant belief that in order that, that the order of the household was divinely ordained and that it was the basis of a well-ordered and prosperous society. Do you want to be prosperous? Do you want to have a society that's well-run? Well, you need to have all three of these parts. That's the way Aristotle thought, and that's the way the Greeks thought. And so Peter this evening addresses these household gods, the, or household codes, I'm sorry, the household codes of the time. And he does it first by addressing, in our passage tonight, the issue of masters and slaves. Um, It's tempting to want to translate this uh, master and servant or something softer than that. But the reality was that in Greek and Roman society, slavery was a daily reality. It was as ordinary and as accepted as electronics or air conditioning are to us. It was just part of everyday life. And so anyone born in the the Greek society, anyone born in the Roman society would just be surrounded on every side by slaves and slavery. They would not be nearly as shocked or troubled by it as we would be today. And one of the things that we see in the New Testament is, is that slavery is not outright condemned or overturned. And to us, I think some of us, especially, we're going to see that and think this is very disappointing. But what I want to suggest is that slavery is continually, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, undermined, constantly undermined to the point that if the teachings of the Old Testament and the New Testament are consistently followed, you have a slavery free society. So in the Old Testament, slavery is is regulated. And that might trouble us. We might say, well, this is bad to have slavery regulated in the Old Testament. Um, In the Old South, it was oftentimes appealed to in the Old Testament. See, if slavery is so bad, then why would it be referred to in the Old Testament? Why would it be regulated? And yet the argument also doesn't hold water because divorce is regulated in the Old Testament And yet we know that Jesus said the only reason God permitted divorce was because of the hardness of people's hearts. In other words, uh, divorce was regulated because people's hearts were hard. And in the Old Testament, slavery is regulated. But it's not because slavery is a good. It's because people's hearts are hard. And if you read the Old Testament and you look at the consistent teaching of the Old Testament, you find that slavery may be regulated, but it is continually undercut. For example, Exodus 21.16 says, Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Oftentimes, slave owners in the South, this is our that's our that's our context, right? Um, You know, we're not living in a Greek and Roman society, but slave owners in the South would often say, well, um, I didn't steal this man. He was born in my household. And yet the passage says anyone who's even found in possession of him should be put to death. So even in the Old Testament, slavery is regulated and it is undercut. And the New Testament does the same thing. So, for example, one of the most beautiful places this is done is in the book of Philemon. Paul, in his journeys, is, finds himself in prison and he ends up meeting a runaway slave named Onesimus. And when Onesimus comes to faith, Paul meets Onesimus, he disciples him, he becomes what Paul calls his son in the faith, and he sends Onesimus back. Onesimus willingly returns to his old master Philemon. 
who is a Christian. And in so many words, what Paul does is he encourages Philemon to willingly let Onesimus go. And the basis upon which he appeals to Philemon to let this man go is he says, you are brothers now. You are equals now. However, the way that Paul does this is very careful. Paul doesn't command him to let Onesimus go. Instead, he wants Onesimus. He says this openly in the letter. He says, I don't command you because I want you to willingly let Onesimus go. In, in other words, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't condemn the institution of slavery. And yet at the same time, he very clearly is trying to move Philemon away from practicing this. He wants him to let him go from the heart. And he undercuts slavery as well when we read where he says, in Christ Jesus, there is neither slave nor free. Now that is huge. It may not seem huge to us, but it would have been huge in the eyes of a Greco-Roman society because he is saying that in God's eyes, a slave and a free man are on the same level. Those social divisions are artificial and they're not biblical. And here we see Peter recognizing the social reality of slavery, but also working to weaken it as well. And and I want to show you how. In particular, Peter addresses this question, what if you're a slave and your master is unjust? That's a huge question. How do you deal with that? Now, we want to move on to the answer, but I want you to actually realize what he's doing even in the question. Because this was such a revolutionary thing for, for Peter to say about the slave-master relationship at all because the idea was that there was, there was something, the idea that there was something that you could not do to a slave would have been unthinkable in the Greco-Roman society. There was nothing off limits. There was nothing you could not do to somebody that you owned. And so when Peter says, that it's possible for a master to be unjust, he is, he's giving a moral status to the slave that is unheard of in their time. All right, because if you read Aristotle, you actually see that he believed that the slave had no moral status. There was no way to wrong a slave. In order to wrong somebody, you have to be on the same moral level with them. And what, he, what Aristotle said was, we're not. We're on different levels altogether. If you couldn't do an injustice to a slave, if it was possible to do an injustice to a slave, then it would imply equal moral status. And Peter says, they're on the same level. What do you do when the master who owns you is a bad master? The New Testament is a book of freedom. It's not a, it's not a book of freedom from morality. It's, it's uh, not a book about freedom from virtue. It's certainly not a book of freedom from God, of course. But it is a book of freedom from bondage. And especially bondage to sin. And yes, As I hope you see from what I've been presenting to you, bondage from being owned by another person. Now, the New Testament undercuts slavery, but it also recognizes slavery. And I think to to many of us, we might say, you know, this is really disappointing. Are Are the New Testament writers a disappointment because they didn't call 
for the outright abolition of Greco-Roman slavery. All right, why didn't Peter write, uh, slaves, overthrow your masters? Um, That's disappointing to us, right? Why didn't Paul do that when he wrote to Philemon? Why did he send Onesimus back to Philemon? Why would he do that? Something to keep in mind is what happens the moment the New Testament writers call for that sort of social change. Because the minute that that happens, what Paul does is he goes from being an evangelist to being a violent revolutionary. Instead of being a preacher, what he becomes is sort of this Che Guevara type figure who leads a violent revolution. And, and that's because as soon as you start to call for, for the abolition of something like that, especially you're not a member of the government, you're just a citizen, well, you have to take on, you have to take on that project of overturning the entire Roman government because that's exactly what it was built upon. There had been slave rebellions in Rome, even if Paul did call for the abolition of slavery, even if Peter did call for the abolition of slavery, They would have just been another slave rebellion. There had been those before in Rome. Uh, There was a slave rebellion led by Eunice in Sicily in 135 BC. It was put down. Now, maybe you've heard of Spartacus before. Uh, Maybe you've heard of, maybe you've seen the movie. Maybe you've heard of the movie. but But Spartacus led a slave rebellion in 73 BC. He actually assembled an army of slaves Uh, If you ever wondered why didn't they just get together, band together, and and actually just crush the Roman government, the answer is they did a really good job of it at first. They they got together an army of 100,000 men, 100,000 slaves all together, unified, fighting for their freedom. And they defeated two Roman armies, fought their way to Gaul, and they were free men for two years. At the end of those two years, they were crushed by Roman generals. The whole army was wiped out. There were 6,000 of the 100,000 who actually survived, and all 6,000 surviving slaves were publicly crucified. If you can imagine 6,000 people being crucified, it's almost unthinkable. And the message that the Roman government sent very loud and clear was this, winning slavery through, winning against slavery through violence will not work. And so the New Testament does something different. It plants the seeds of change. It implies a political change. It does. But it's not political change that's accomplished through violent revolution. It's done by changing hearts. And so I am absolutely persuaded the New Testament is not a book that advocates or approves of slavery. But it is a book that recognizes it as a social reality in the day in which it was written. Now all of this is a very lengthy way of introducing this idea of masters and slaves. I'm still in the introduction. (laughs) Thankfully, slavery, certainly as an institutional reality, is not a part of our world in the West. And yet for most of us, we still live in the aftermath of slavery. We live in the uh, antebellum South. We live in a place where that is not a far distant reality. It is something that is very fresh history. 
And in our own day and age, we don't have slaves and masters, at least in our society, but we do have, a, in a much weaker sense, in a completely different sense, we still have this employer-employee relationship. It's not a perfect analog to slavery. There are huge differences, of course. Uh, if our boss mistreats us, we can leave that job unless we really need the money. Um, if our employer dehumanizes us, we have recourse. We have federal, state, local, governmental laws that recognize us as human beings who are worthy of worth and meaning, at least when the system is working right. Our employers pay us today, of course. And of course, in our own day, we get to go home when the workday is done. Our employers don't get to own us. So there are massive, massive differences. But at the same time, which of us hasn't had a difficult employer or a difficult boss over us? In a sense, if you, if you boil it down, that really is, I think, the closest analog to what Peter is talking about that we can relate to here tonight. We're talking about a tough boss. Um, a couple months ago, there was a senator who announced she was running for president. And very soon after she announced her run, there were former aides and interns. They just sort of started coming out of the woodwork and they told stories about her being a really extraordinarily difficult boss. She apparently had the highest turnover of anyone holding her office. Um, People reported that she screamed at them, that she threw things at them, that many of them would end up leaving the office reduced to tears. So it depends on the line of work that you've been in, but maybe you can relate to this sort of thing. Maybe you can relate to that, you know. It's difficult to hold many jobs before eventually finding yourself in the employ of someone who is less than gentle and less than gracious. And I think Peter, in a sense, leaves us asking this question, how should we deal in our context with the truly difficult people that are over us? Why should we submit to our superiors, whoever they happen to be? Peter gives two answers in our passage this evening. The first is we should submit to receive a reward And the second reason is to resemble Jesus. Reward and resemblance, the two motivators that Peter appeals to. So let's try to understand both of these better so that we can be obedient in the way that Peter says Christians should be obedient. The first motivator Peter mentions for us to submit to our superiors, whoever they may be, is reward. He appeals to reward. In verses 19 and 20, Peter says it's a gracious thing when we submit to our superiors. And the original word in the Greek is the word for commendable, something that is commendable, something that is praiseworthy. And, there, uh, and in fact, that's what it says in some translations. He, he talks about how it is no credit to be beaten if one deserves it. Uh, but the implied opposite here is also true. If it, it, is, it is a credit to be beaten if we don't deserve it. In other words, Peter says there is a negative reward for someone who disobeys, but there is a positive reward for someone who does obey in the face of opposition. Jesus talks this way also about the idea of receiving rewards for doing good. In Acts chapter 6, there's this passage where Jesus asks this rhetorical question, and he, he asks it three different times. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is it to you? What credit is it to you? And he says this over and over again from verses 32 to 34 of Luke 6. And then he says in verse 35, but love your enemies and your reward will be great. 
So for, for, for Jesus and for Peter, when we do something pleasing to God, like loving our enemies or submitting to, to a bad uh, employer, there will be a reward. What is the reward? Well, it depends on who you are. If you're the one who deals out the suffering, if you're the one who does the beating, if you're the bad boss in this scenario, Peter says you're doing something unjust. The Bible tells us the reward that the unjust will receive. Uh, Paul says in Acts 24, 15, there's coming a resurrection of the just and the unjust. So if, if you're the unjust employer, if you mistreat others, if you're a cruel employer who takes advantage of those who work for you because they have nowhere else to go and you're counting on that, then you are unjust. If you're in a position of authority and you take advantage of that position, you're unjust. See, the warning is there's coming a day when you will be raised up. And if you're unjust and you don't repent and you don't turn from your sin, you will be raised up only to be judged and cast into the place with weeping and gnashing of teeth. You got the best reward you could have ever hoped for while you were alive, and now you'll be receiving the judgment for how you lived. What a terrifying warning. What, what a terrifying reward for that sort of life. But it's all true. If you're the one who's mistreated for doing good, if you're a believer who is mindful of God while you suffer, Peter tells you that you will receive a reward. But what is the reward? Well, even Jesus doesn't say it explicitly in Luke 6, but the context here is end-time deliverance. So um, just like the one mistreating you will be raised up for judgment, what happens to the just person? Well, they are raised up to life. And when that happens, you receive all that's yours in Christ. Or, or to put it another way, there's a day coming when you'll be glad you were beaten and not the beater. For Peter, this reward is a powerful motivator to patiently endure. True, true suffering is something that we endure. It isn't something we celebrate. It's something, something we get excited about. We just get through it. How do we do that? By remembering what awaits us. By remembering our reward. By setting our eyes on the king. And Peter does that here for us in point two because he tells us that not only do we endure suffering at the hands of our unjust superiors because of the reward that awaits us, but because of who Jesus is and because of what he endured. Point two is resemblance. Resemblance. It's the second reason why we would submit to unjust superiors. Um, Peter is very direct in making this point, especially in verse 21. He says, for to this you have been called. And when he says this, he means suffering for doing good. He's saying we were called to suffer for doing good. He says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. Peter is talking to a people who are, who are innocent and not guilty of some sort of crime against their superior. And, and what is the substance of Peter's encouragement? He says, Christ Jesus has been there. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. But what happened to him? He was treated like a sinner. He was treated like a liar. He suffered at the hands of the unjust. He was hated, but he didn't hate back. He was given the punishment of the hateful, though. 
He certainly got treated like he hated. He received misery and punishment even though he deserved neither. Just over and over again, Peter is laying down the contrast here. And then he turns the lens back on the reader and he says, He bore our sins in his body on the tree. We might be mistreated by those in authority, but Peter quickly says, That doesn't mean we're innocent. That doesn't mean we're sinless. He says in verse 25, you were straying like sheep. That's us. That's who we were. We're part of the problem. We are why he suffered in the first place. So don't get smug. Even when we suffer, we never get to have a self-righteous attitude. Because we've been shown grace. We've committed the sins that put him there. We are the revilers. We are the unjust. We are the liars. We are the deceivers. Even when we're treated unfairly by our fellow man, we're never mistreated by our God. Instead, He answered our mistreatment by bearing our sins in his body on the tree. And that brings us back to Jesus. Because if Jesus received what we deserved and what we didn't deserve and what he didn't deserve, then the flip side of it is true. Every suffering that we experience will always be a taste. It will be a nibble of what we did deserve and ultimately received escape from. We may taste justice. But in Jesus Christ, we know that he's the only one who received it in full. And how did he do that? Peter says in verse 23, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This word entrust here is the example for us. Jesus entrusted himself to God. And Peter is saying that is what we need to do too. When we suffer, uh, we're, we're powerless in a sense. We're in the moment. We're at someone else's mercy. What can we do? We can entrust ourselves to him. You can trust him. Christ did. He trusted his father. And the outcome was beautiful And glorious deliverance. And it will be for you too. Even if you can't see it in the moment. Peter says when we suffer. Quietly and patiently and graciously. We're following in the steps of our Lord. We're following the example of Jesus. We're following the same road as him. You see for Christians facing injustice and unfair treatment. And even hatred are supposed to be par for the course. When we have it peachy, that's the exception. When we don't experience suffering, when we don't experience mistreatment, that is the exception, not the rule. I think we're very spoiled in the West. I think we're very spoiled. Suffering is is not a bug in the system. It is part of the programming. It has always been part of God's plan. Suffering is built into this. Edmund Clowney relates a story from Korea in 1948 in the town of, I'm going to say some of these Korean names wrong, by the way, in the town of Sunchan, 
near the 38th parallel, there was a band of communists who took control of the town. And when the communists took control of the town, they executed two of the sons of Pastor Yang Wan Sun. And the sons' names were Matthew and John. And they died as martyrs. They died as martyrs at the hands of the communists. They were mistreated for doing good, just like Peter talks about here. And as they died, they told their persecutors the gospel and they told them, trust in Jesus. Eventually, the communists were driven back north and the town was returned to its citizens. But one of the men who pulled the trigger and killed one of his sons was a fellow named Chai Sun. And Chai Sun was tried for the murder of the pastor's son. And he was found guilty and his execution was ordered. But Pastor Yang Wan's son made a request. He requested that this man's life be spared and that he be allowed to adopt him. So think about this. The pastor's son is murdered and he adopts the murderer as his own son. And Pastor Sun said this, I thank God that he has given me the love to seek, to convert, and to adopt as my son the enemy who killed my dear boys. And so Pastor Sun adopted the murderer of his own sons and made him part of his family. And Chai Sun became a believer because of these horrible, painful events. Think about this. It took the deaths of Matthew and John at the hands of their oppressors to change the heart of this boy and bring him to Christ. Just think of it. If you had been pastor son, you might have said, Lord, is there some other way? But the answer he would have heard is, I believe would have been something like this. There is no other road to the tomb and glory than by way of the cross. There wasn't for me and there won't be for you either. Peter says in this passage tonight, Jesus is our example. And the Greek word for this, for this word example is hypogrammon. I know, think about that word grammon. It's the word for, for letter, okay? And it's a letter that's used for children who trace over the alphabet. They trace over the letters of the alphabet so they can learn to write the letters correctly. Um, if you've worked with children at all. Many of you are teachers and have had a history of teaching. You know that one of the things you do is you show the children the letter and you let them run their pencil over the letter. But first, you have to write it down yourself. And when, when Peter uses this word, he's telling us something very special. He says, when we suffer, we're tracing over the letters of Jesus. We're tracing over the suffering of Jesus. Are you ready to suffer? Are you ready to trace the life of the master? He calls you to it. Peter assumes it for us. He doesn't say this is a really fantastic life option, something that you should consider for yourself. This is a great lifestyle. You could choose the lifestyle of a sufferer. No, he assumes it. And I think sometimes when we suffer, we think of suffering as a detour. We think of it as something that's holding us back from the real path. We think of it as something that sends us off in the wrong direction. But the reality is, on, this, on the road of faith, suffering is the road. Suffering is not something that gets in the way of the real path. 
And I want you to see this tonight, that Peter talks about it as the road to our reward. Suffering and submission is the main road of Christ. Not a detour. Not a detour. Let's pray. Lord, we, we do resist suffering when it comes. In whatever form it comes in, whether... It's being mistreated either by the authorities or by those that you've put over us providentially, like employers, or whether it's sickness or whether it's hatred from others, Lord, whatever the suffering is, we often despise it. And yet, Lord, you've ordained it to be an ordinary part of the Christian life. Won't you help us, Lord, in whatever our calling is to follow the example of your Son, to endure quietly and patiently the path you've set for us, the path of glory, the one that runs through the cross. Would you help us in our relationships to others who are in a superior position, that we would glorify you by reflecting Christ? Would you be with those who are in some sort of position of authority also, not to be unjust, but to reflect your goodness and your integrity and your kindness? and how we treat others. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen.